A few months ago, I flew to Israel for a couple of strategic meetings. While I was there, I did one bit of sightseeing. I've been to Israel a dozen or so times over the last 20 years, so there's not much there that I haven't seen. But over the last 20 years, one historic site has eluded me. It's this small charcoal drawing of a boat. This drawing is buried deep in a second century stone quarry, about 25 feet below the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is the site of the crucifixion and burial of Jesus. And this little drawing is in the Armenian Orthodox section of the church. It sits inside of a chapel guarded by two sets of locked doors. One Armenian priest holds the keys to both of those doors. And no one gets in unless they're Armenian. Believe me, I've tried. I've tried to talk my way in. I've tried to sneak my way in with a group of Armenian tourists. That day I got all the way to the open door and the priest asked me something in Armenian, which I didn't understand. And then he asked me in English if I was Armenian. I said no, and I was quickly rebuffed. I'm not proud of it, but one time about four years ago, I even tried to bribe my way in. That didn't work. But a few months ago, thanks to an Armenian friend, for the first time, I found myself face to face with this crude drawing and its accompanying Latin phrase. So what's so significant about this little inscription? It it was discovered in the 1970s, but it dates to somewhere between the mid-2nd century and the early 4th century. Even if you accept the most conservative late dating for this drawing, it was done no later than 319 AD. So it's old, but there are a lot of old things in Israel. It's a piece of art, but it's not particularly beautiful. So, So why was I so excited to see it? Why have I been trying for nearly two decades to see it? The drawing is the earliest Christian inscription of any kind in the Holy Land. It's evidence that very shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection, people were making pilgrimages to this very site. It's one of the pieces of archaeology that leads nearly all New Testament scholars to believe that the site of the modern church of the Holy Sepulchre is indeed the same site where Jesus was crucified and buried and rose from the dead. So before there was ever a church there, before the emperor Hadrian desecrated the holy sites by building pagan temples over them, before Constantine started building churches over the holy sites in Israel, before there were tour buses or airplanes, followers of Jesus were traveling to this site and honoring and remembering his sacrifice. But it it was not even the huge archaeological significance that got me excited when I saw this ancient drawing. So it's not the art, it's not the history, it's not even the archaeology that intrigues me, it's the content. Well, you see a boat, it's a a means of transportation, but not just any boat, a boat with its sail down, indicating an arrival or a completion of a mission. And then written under the boat, you see the Latin words, Domine Iwimus. Domine, you probably know, means Lord. Iwimus is an ancient Latin form of the irregular Latin verb eo, which means to go. It's the first person plural, present active indicative tense, which translated means we have gone. So this little inscription means, Lord, we have gone. So why is that little message exciting to me? It's exciting to me because these ancient pilgrims came to this site, likely without the intent of of drawing what is essentially ancient graffiti, but they got there after a long journey and they wanted to leave a message. And I can imagine them picking up a, a cold piece of coal from a nearby fire and drawing this crude boat, and writing these words, never imagining that their little drawing would last 1,800 years. Domine Iwimus, Lord, we have gone. The message they wanted to leave at this pilgrimage site was essentially this, Lord, we did it. 
We did what you told us to do. We went. These early pilgrims had fulfilled their part of the Great Commission. And depending on which dating you believe for the drawing, as few as a few decades earlier, Jesus had told a small band of followers in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. This passage is called the Great Commission. It's what drives us here at Glad Tidings. To fulfill the Great Commission, we must go and make disciples and baptize and teach, and they did. They went to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of their known world. They went, and when they came back to this holy place, they wanted Jesus to know they had obeyed. And if you zoom out from that spot in Jerusalem to where we sit here today in Indiana, you'll quickly come to the realization that none of us would be here today if those early followers of Jesus hadn't gone, if they hadn't been sent out, if they hadn't counted the cost of following Jesus, if they hadn't gone, we wouldn't be here today. They took Jesus seriously when he told them to go, and so should we. They came to this site and said, Jesus, you are worth it. Jesus, are worthy. We went to the hard places. We went to the far off places. We went to the places that they didn't want us. Some of us didn't make it back here because of persecution we weathered for your name. But Jesus, you are worth it all. Lord, we have gone. They took Jesus seriously when he told them to go, and so should we. The task is still unfinished. There are still 6,700 unreached people groups around the world who haven't heard, and Jesus is still calling us to go. And, and And like those early pilgrims, we have a job to do. We have a job to do because of people like my friend Ahmed. I met Ahmed in the West Bank on that same trip to Israel. Ahmed has an incredible testimony that could be an action movie, really. Ahmed was thrown in jail when he was 13 years old, suspected of being a radical Islamic extremist. He wasn't at the time, but he told me it didn't take long in prison amongst all the other radical extremists for him to become one. So when he got out at 14 years old, he started committing acts of terror or jihad, and he looked me in the eyes and he said, this is the time in my life that if you had met me, you would not have lived to tell about it. I shifted uncomfortably in my seat, but Ahmed didn't even blink. At 17, Ahmed ended up back in prison. In his early 20s, he somehow got a visa to come study in the U.S., and he and his wife moved to the South to start a family. It was in the rural South of America that they were first introduced to Jesus. A local church began ministering to them and supporting them, but Ahmed told me that he mostly just took took advantage of their generosity. He overstayed his visa and was thrown in jail in the U.S. for over a year before he was deported. And during that year, Ahmed was in isolation, and the only thing he could do is read. So he read everything he could about Jesus. And by the time he and his wife were deported back to the West Bank, he was ready to become a Christian. It took him a little while to convince his wife, but shortly after they landed in the West Bank, they both went to the Jordan River to be baptized. And Ahmed now openly evangelizes amongst Muslims in the West Bank. He is a part of the great revival that's happening there. He used to be Hamas, and now he witnesses daily to members of Hamas. He does so boldly because of the Holy Spirit in him, but his boldness is somewhat bolstered by the fact his children are American citizens, so Hamas is afraid to touch him because of the possible repercussions. Ahmed is an MBB. An MBB is a Muslim background believer. In other words, someone who was born a Muslim but has now made a decision to be a follower of Jesus. 
Ahmed is now planting a church in the West Bank made up exclusively of Muslim background believers who are former radicals. They were once radicalized for Islam, and, and, and now they're radical in their pursuit of bringing glory to the name of Jesus in a difficult place. And one day, Ahmed will get to heaven, and he will see Jesus face to face, and maybe he just might say, Domine, we must, Lord, we have gone. And Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. We have a job to do because of people like Nick. Nick is an MBB in the Indian Ocean Basin on the eastern coast of Africa. He's been a believer for about 30 months now. I met him in 2019, just after he was saved, and Pastor Kevin and I were with him in September in Africa. At, in that time, in those 30 months, he has faced increasing persecution from his own family. His wife was forced to leave him and later died under mysterious circumstances. He wasn't even allowed by her family to come to the funeral. About five months ago, two of his brothers grabbed him and took some of his blood, and then they let him go. In this part of the world, Islam is syncretized with the local animus belief, so it was pretty clear to, that his family was going to use his blood to try to place some kind of curse on Nick. Shortly after that, his own family declared jihad against him. His own family declared that they were in a holy war that was going to cost him his life. And after being threatened by his brothers and his family with jihad, Nick believed that he had heard from God that he was supposed to meet with his family, the very people that were trying to kill him. He was supposed to meet with them and share, them the, share with them the message of Jesus and truth. So instead of running, Nick allowed himself to be captured. Nick's purpose in allowing himself to be captured was and not running, was to be able to share with his family and his captors the message of truth. Nick's desire was for his family to come to faith. And so during a portion of his interrogation, he had to sit and listen for two hours to an apologetic to return to Islam, and Nick then had his chance to share his faith and why he had chosen to follow Jesus. And Nick told me their faces changed when he began to share the truth. They became angry. And in one final effort to convince him, they did what you do, the world over when you can't get a man to do what he wants. They called his mom. And with begging and sobbing, she asked Nick just to say the words and they would release him. Just renounce Jesus. You don't even have to mean it. Just say it. And Nick said the words would be a lie and he couldn't betray Jesus. And so the next day, his family took him out to a remote area and they prepared to stone him to death. I cannot help but think of the story of Stephen in the book of Acts and how the faces of Stephen's captors changed and they took him out and they stoned him. Nick went out fully prepared to die. And as he knelt preparing to receive the stoning, he said he, he, he began to pray in the spirit and he felt himself transported, if you will. He said he felt distant from his surroundings and the sounds felt far away. He said he felt drawn closer and closer into the presence of Jesus. And he even wondered if he was already dead and he was entering the presence of Jesus in heaven. And after what seemed like 15 or 20 minutes, he opened his eyes and looked around to find that he was alone. All around him were large stones that had been designed to kill him, just laying harmlessly on the ground. And alone, he stood up and walked away. All Nick could say when I asked him about it was, Jesus did it. Jesus did it. There's now a small group of seven MBBs on the island. Pastor Kevin and I got to see the seventh Phoenix baptized when we were in Africa. We call them affectionately the Band of Brothers or the Bobs. 
It's the band of brothers' desire for all of their family to come to know Jesus, and all of them have miraculous stories like this one of being abducted and miraculously spared. And now, thanks to your partnership and kingdom builders and our Christmas offering, Nick and the rest of the band of brothers are going to get theological training right on the island where they live. They're going to get support as they split up across the island and and, and plant six new house churches. And one day, Nick and the rest of the band of brothers will stand before Jesus and they will say, Domine, Iwimus, Lord, we've gone. And Jesus, I believe, will say, well done, Nick. You're a good and faithful servant. We have a job to do because there are still difficult places around the world that need the Bible in their language. They need churches. They need Bible schools and missionaries. We have a job to do because there are still 6,700 unreached people groups in the world. If you're around here for more than a minute, you'll hear us talk about unreached people groups. There are 3.4 billion people on the planet who've never heard the name of Jesus in a meaningful gospel context. Let me just give you real quickly a picture of what it takes to reach 3.4 billion people. If we rented out Lucas Oil Stadium tomorrow evening and we preached, Pastor Kevin gave an altar call and 20,000 people came to Jesus, that'd be amazing, right? And if we did that every night and 20,000 people came to Jesus, you know how long it would take to reach 3.4 billion? Somewhere about 4,000 years. And that's assuming that No more people are born who don't know Jesus. No more people are born into unreached people groups. But what if we sent 100 missionaries out? If we sent 100 missionaries out, and each one of those missionaries just won one disciple to Jesus this year, and then next year, those missionaries and their disciples each won another one, and year after year, we made disciples who made disciples. Do you know how long it would take to reach 3.4 billion people? A lot of people here this morning who would see it in their lifetime, just under 40 years it would take us to reach 3.4 billion people if we just reached one at a time. An unreached people group is a group of people that have a common language, culture, or ethnicity that is completely unreached and has less than 2% Christ-following population. So that's the definition, but what does unreached mean? Unreached means that there's no one in their group that can tell them who Jesus is. The Malinke are a good example. They're one of the 867 unreached people groups on the continent of Africa. There are 127 Malinke people in the world. The Malinke are small tribes spread across five countries in Western Africa. So imagine with me that Jesus appears to a young Malinke woman in her dream. And the next day, she wakes up. Where would she go to ask who this person is and what her dream was about? If she's a Malinke living in Senegal, here's what she faces. There are 62,000 Malinke living in Senegal and not a single known believer. Not one church, not one missionary. So if that girl who had the dream happens to live amongst the Malinke in Senegal, there will be no one who shares her language and culture who can tell her who Jesus is across Gambia and Guinea and Mali and Senegal. There are nearly 100,000 Malinke and less than 10 known believers. And maybe you say, but, but wait, we have unreached people in our town. Shouldn't we reach them first? And the, the answer is, of course, there are unsaved people in our communities. And of course they need Jesus. And of course we should share the good news about Jesus with them. But they are not unreached people. 
See, there's a difference between unreached and unchurched. Let me give you an example of that. Indianapolis is a city of about a million people. There are, as of this weekend, about 511 churches in Indianapolis. Al-Hudayata in Yemen is a town just a little bit bigger than Indianapolis, about 1.4 million people. You want to know how many churches they have? Zero. A town the size of Indianapolis and not one single church. That's what it means to be unreached, to have no one you can ask who Jesus is. I want to introduce you to another unreached people group, the Banchata people. There are about 60,000 Banchata people who live in 76 villages in the Indian state of Madhya Pradesh. The Banchata belong to the lowest caste in Indian society. We don't have really anything that compares to the caste system in America But basically, when a child is born, they're born into a caste or a social group, and it's another kind of pyramid with the elites at the top and the untouchables at the bottom. And with very few exceptions, you're locked into your caste for life. The Banchata are the bottom of the pyramid. They're extremely poor. They have a very low literacy rate. And for over 500 years, Banchata people have sold their daughters into sexual slavery This 500-year-old tradition has no effect on the males as they feel like they have divine sanction to initiate their daughters into this trade. It begins by dedicating their newborn girls to the goddess of prostitution, followed by neighbors and friends coming to congratulate for the future profit they're going to make by prostituting and selling their daughter. And from the first day of life, little girls are seen as a commodity. Between the ages of 10 and 12, Girls are sold to older men to become wives. They told me a very beautiful girl can be sold for as much as $15,000, the equivalent of three years of income. Those who aren't sold as wives are prostituted by their own families to generate income. Families expect girls to be their main source of income. People who want to have sex with children are their target customer base. From all over India, men drive to Madhya Pradesh to pay to have sex with children. And in these communities, prostitution is not presented as a choice, but as a mandate. It's their caste, their prison, their way of life. Parents see no value for education as as girls have to become prostitutes and boys will become pimps. And even though children are enrolled in schools at young ages, most drop out either after either the fifth or the eighth grade. The school dropout rate is 100%. Every Banchata girl is trafficked. Little boys are trained to become pimps and managers in the sex trade. Their fate is determined when they are born. There is no one to encourage these children to follow their dreams. More than 50% of the population has HIV AIDS with almost no medical care or prevention. Newborns often inherit the disease. Our goal is to have a presence in and bring transformation to all 76 Banchata villages. And we're reaching out and building relationships with families and teaching them there's another way of life and their children don't have to continue the cycle of prostitution and disease. We currently have 252 students from 22 villages studying in our school. That school, by the way, when it opened three years ago, was the first school in the history of the province to go past the eighth grade because everyone dropped out. Our capacity is 255. We have 252 students. In addition, we have 53 children living in our residential homes. We're offering families a new way of life for their children who are being educated and trained to change the culture and break the cycle. A Christ-centered education is the only way for them to climb out of their place at the bottom of society. When I was in India in 2019, I met with Ramesh and Asmi, parents of two daughters. Their plan was to sell the older daughter 
and then to prostitute the younger. But when our team began talking and sharing, Ramesh and Asami made the decision to trust their daughters to our care. They wept as they shared the story of discovering the love of Jesus and his plan for their daughters. And both of their girls are now in our school. Beautiful little girls. Their faces and their smiles tell me it's worth it. Every dollar I give is worth it. See, trafficking has been the tradition in this region of India for 500 years, and for at least that long, trafficking has plagued the continent of Africa. 80% of the trafficked women in Europe come from the continent of Africa. Often they're fooled by traffickers into thinking that they'll get a job at a hotel or learn a trade, and sometimes in the most wicked and evil situations, even their pastor is involved in trafficking them. In our Christmas offering this year, we're producing a toolkit in partnership with Africa Oasis and Project Rescue that ultimately we want to distribute to every church on the continent of Africa. The toolkit will contain training on prevention of trafficking and other resources to help us cut off the supply of trafficked women coming from the continent of Africa to Europe. And for $56, we can provide one of these toolkits to a church. We need thousands of them. We still have work to do. Over 90% of our long-term missionaries work in already Christianized groups, less than 10%, and some researchers suggest less than 3% of our missionaries work in unreached people groups. And this is the statistic that really just blows my mind. Of every dollar that Christians give to all causes, less than one penny goes to financing the work amongst unreached people groups. Christian adherents make up 33% of the world's population, and we're we're privileged, we're, we're wealthy, we make up 53% of the world's annual income, and the reality is we spend 98% of it on ourselves. We have a job to do. I told you earlier that none of us would be here today if it weren't for the fact that those early disciples did what Jesus asked them to do. Not one of us, no church, no campuses, no GT kids, no Chi Alpha, no building, none of it would be here today if it weren't for the fact that those early followers of Jesus fulfilled their part of the Great Commission. None of us would be here if they hadn't decided that Jesus was worthy and no matter what it cost them, they were going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You are evidence that they went. And now it's our turn. Let me ask you a question. What will be the future evidence that you fulfilled the Great Commission? Or more specifically, who will be the future evidence that you fulfilled the Great Commission? Who will be the future evidence that you did what Jesus told you to do? And you might say, well, I'm not called to missions. I just give money. And I think you're wrong. I think we're all called to missions. I think the Great Commission is for all of us, but I think God gives each of us different assignments. Some of us he assigns to go to difficult places. Some of us he assigns to be pastors and leaders. And some of us he assigns to be part of the funding of the going. But we are all called. The reality is we may never see Malinke believers face to face in this life that are, are saved as a result of our giving and our work and our kingdom building but one day you will stand before Jesus and he will say, did you go? Did you make disciples? Did you do it? And I want everyone in this room to be able to look Jesus in the eyes and declare, Domine, Iwimus, Lord, we have gone. 
And I wonder if on that day, Jesus might just smile and say, I know you did. Because over here is a guy named Francis. And right over there is a guy named Nick. And right over there is a guy named Ahmed. And right down there, there's a Druze grandmother and a Malinke grandfather. And they're all here because you went. Well done, good and faithful servant. I started today by sharing the Great Commission with you, a passage that you know, Matthew 28, 19. Go into all the world. But the verse we often miss is the verse that comes right after that. It's a part of the Great Commission, but it, it's really a conditional promise that's tied to the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 20 says, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We used to sing that song, Every Promise in the Book is Mine. It's really actually not 100% true. There are conditional promises in the Bible where you have to fulfill certain conditions to lay claim to that promise. And as much as I want to tell you this promise is yours this morning, there's a condition that you must fulfill to lay claim to the promise that Jesus is with you always, even to the very end of the age. What's the condition? That we go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples and baptize and teach. That we fulfill the Great Commission. If you want Jesus with you, you need to be doing what Jesus asked. If you want Jesus with you, and I know I do, I want Jesus with my family, I want Jesus with my grandkids, I want Jesus in my vocation, in my job, I want Jesus with me everywhere I go, and he's promised he would do that if I will do what he called me to do. So on that day when I see Jesus face to face, I want to be able to look him in the eyes and say, Domine Iwimus, Lord, I went. I did everything I could to reach to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I want you to be able to say that as well. And I'm so grateful that you're a part of a church that takes the Great Commission seriously. I'm so grateful you're part of a church that has kingdom builders and says we're going to do whatever we can not to build our kingdom, but to build his kingdom. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for people who are willing to do the difficult task of going to the unreached. I pray for more missionaries. I pray for more people who will go and do what you have called them to do. But Lord, I know you've called everyone in this room this morning to be a part of your great commission. You've called us all, Lord, to give sacrificially so that we can one day look you in the eyes and say, Lord, we did it. We know that we wouldn't be here today if those early disciples hadn't gone. And so today we take seriously your command and we want to know who is it that's going to be the evidence that we went. And all across this world, our missionary partners all around the world, God, they're going to be the evidence that we went. They're going to be the evidence that we took you seriously. And you promised, God, you promised that if we would do this, you would be with us to the very end of the age. And so we're laying claim to that promise today. So Lord, I pray in this room that there would be 100% obedience. As you speak to our hearts, as you challenge our hearts, Lord, that we would be obedient because i know god if there is 100 percent obedience in this room every need that that, that that can be articulated through kingdom builders and through our christmas offering every need will be met all we need is your people to be obedient and so i thank you for it today i thank you for the people who have given their lives for this great cause
And I thank you, God, you give us the privilege of participating and sharing the good news of Jesus around this world. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Domine Aweus. Lord, we have gone. What a statement. You know, I, I've told um, many of you in the past about a story that I had an opportunity to share the gospel with some um, young adult ladies at the hospital when I was doing a hospital visit. I came through and I had stumbled across a, a conversation that had been taking place before I arrived. There was, I could, you know, when you walk into a room and you can kind of feel the tension immediately, you can cut it with a knife. That was the situation I had walked in on. And there was a lady behind the desk when I walked up. And she kept looking over here with these two young adult ladies that I could tell there was a discussion that had been taking place. And I was just trying to get to go do my hospital visit and get back in the car and get to a, a teenager's basketball game that I needed to see. And the two young ladies over on my left, they, they looked at me and they finally said, tell her, tell her. And I said, tell her what? And they looked at me and said, tell her that there's no proof for the existence of God. And the lady, I could tell she was frustrated right behind the desk. And I looked at them and I said, well, are you willing to have a conversation about that? And instantly their faces had a little bit of a, a shock to them. And they said, what? I said, well, I'm a pastor. And immediately the lady behind the desk went, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> right? But what began from that moment was a conversation um, And, I, and I've shared about that conversation in the past, but there was a part of that conversation that I've never shared before that I want to share today. And um, one of the moments that helped change it is I asked them, I said, you know, so you don't believe in the existence of God, correct? And they said, yes. And they said, you know, they, they'd been hurt by church and so many other things. And, and I said, absolutely, there's, there's, there's real wounds that have happened across people's lives. I said, but, but here's my question to you. I said, what difference are you making in the world? And I kind of just caught back for a moment. Like, what? Like, no one's ever asked me that question. He said, because the people of God throughout all of history, they've dug wells. They've created orphanages. They fed the needy. The first sign of plagues and outbreaks, they're usually the first ones on the scene oftentimes inheriting the, the disease themselves in the process of bringing hope and rescue. They take the name of Jesus all across the nations. I said, what other people do that? What other people love like that? What other people kind of have that same desire and concern? And the truth is this, is this whole series we've been looking at missions, we've been looking at planning churches, we've been looking at projects. The truth is this, you cannot do everything. You can't. You alone here today, you, we, not a single person in this room has the ability to accomplish everything that needs to be accomplished for the kingdom of God. But together, we can do something. Together, we can make a massive in, impact. All are called, all are equipped, all are empowered, all are resourced. I loved what he was talking about. One of the things, and this blew my mind, that missionaries pray for all the time, especially in these unreached people groups, they pray before they even hit the ground and they say, God, will you give the people we're going to dreams of you? 
dreams and visions of you, Jesus, so that whenever we hit the ground, that there's already an aspect. And can I tell you something that's really crazy and awesome is it's happening all across this world. I was just talking to a missionary this past Friday night. That, that was one of his specific prayer points because they've already encountered it countless times where people have come to them and they said, tell me about this person, Jesus, because he haunts my dreams in a good way. But can I tell you something? How can they know if someone's not sent? How can they know more about what has been placed inside their heart if there's not even a missionary that can tell them about the good news of Jesus? We support missions. I was just thanked by a missionary that was with us, the Lances, this past week as we picked up support of them. And they were so thankful. And then even um, Mercy, who was with us just recently, we picked up support for her. Instantly got an email back from her saying, thank you so much. Because of the support of your church, I am now finally able to hit the field. She's on her way. Praise God. Planting churches. Just this past year in our church, we've seen over 22 different people accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. How awesome is that? As a church, we've had a hand in the process of Muncie North being planted because of our faithful giving, and now with Bluffton because of our faithful giving. And the truth is we do so because we were invested in. We're here today because of the faithful giving of other people. And projects. This year, um, we have a lot of different projects. If you have, um, on your way out, you can pick up a Kingdom Builders Guide to go over all the different things that we're doing. But I'm just going to tell you about two real quickly. One of them is we're, we're purchasing Bibles for pews inside of uh, churches in Cuba. And I said this last week, how many of you would have, would love the opportunity to stand through one of my sermons? <laughs> right? No. But all across this world, people don't even have the same opportunity that we do to come down and sit in a nice chair. We have the opportunity to invest in some churches and purchase pews for them. And then for another missionary, we're purchasing fire Bibles for children who are hungry and desperate to get the word of God for them to have at home and to go through. Convoy of Hope feeds over 500,000 kids. Opportunity to be a part of that. So what I'm going to ask you to do here in just a moment is on your chairs, there's a faith promise card. If you would just take it and hold it in your hand just now. This is what we're asking you to do today. I want you to pray. And I want you to ask God, God, what are you calling me or us to do? What are you calling me or us to do to be a part of building the kingdom of God by supporting missions, by helping plant churches, by accomplishing projects that are all across the globe. This past year, we had a goal to reach 15,600, and we have exceeded that. Praise God. That's awesome. This coming year, our goal is $24,000. We are increasing our mission support. We've added three new missionaries this year that we're supporting. Um, two that are um, global missionaries and the one that is, serves at a college campus, because how many of you know our college campuses need Jesus? <laughs> Absolutely, right? So um, we'll, we'll be supporting three new missionaries this year. We've got more projects. We'll have a Kingdom Builders um, Convoy of Hope offering next year, but there, there's a lot to be done, and it's going to take all of us to, to do it. And 
um, along with that too, you heard him talk about the Christmas offering. The Christmas offering is something that's also very special. We take it from starting today to the end of the year. You can give it at any moment in time. Just write Christmas offering on your envelope. Every dollar that goes into the Christmas offering gets matched by the stone table. Our hope is across all of our Glad Tidings churches to raise about $60,000 total across all of our four different campuses this Christmas. Last year, I think we did 50,000. And so it gets matched. What was 60 gets turned into 120. And every dime goes to unreached people groups. Remember what he said? Unreached people group is a, is a, it's a group of people that less than 2% are evangelical Christians. It means that they do not have the ability to reach their own people. People like the stories he was just talking about today. So here's what I want you to do. If you would just hold this in your hand and take a look at it. Um, it's got a multiple different options. It's either you could do a one-time gift or a monthly gift. But I just want you to use either a couple or use an individual to pray about, God, what, what can we do to be a part of building the kingdom of God in this coming year? The other thing I will ask you is you can start giving towards next year's goals um, starting today. But what you'll need to do is on your envelopes, if you look um, where it says general fund, kingdom builders, and other, Right where it says Kingdom Builders, just start writing 23 above that. And the reason for that is we've already accomplished all the goals for this year. And so we would love for you to start giving towards 23s. That way we can start knocking some of those out even here this fall. I mean, that's incredible that we, we have already accomplished the goals that we have. We actually are even picking up a couple of new ones from the leftover funds that we have. So we would really encourage you, if at all possible, just make sure you write 23 above that. And that will really help us knock out the ones that we're starting on in 2023. This is what I want you to do. I just want you to pray and just say, God, what are you calling me? What are you calling us to do?